What's up, Salt City Church? You are, you are looking good, as always. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah, my name's Jordan Adams, and I'm the college pastor, which makes sense, because I'm super hip, and in with the kids. Hipper than Isaac, right? It's my, it's my dream. It's my dream, man. I wish. But uh, no, I actually, I'm in this kind of weird phase in life where I, I am the college pastor. I just graduated a couple years ago. No kids yet, that type of thing. So that kind of makes sense. But I also just like feel myself turning into a crotchety old man a little bit. So I, I live in Como, which is the neighborhood just, just north of here. So college kids living all around me, which is super fun. But Saturday night, Gosh, they were, okay, so they party every weekend and then started shooting off fireworks at one in the morning. I wanted to just pick up my lamp and throw it at them out my window. So I'm getting, I, I got this old man thing going on with me, so I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to fight it. I'm trying to stay young. And so part of my dream came true on multiple levels a couple weeks, well, dream might be a little strong, but on, on a couple levels a couple weeks ago. So I was, was invited by Keaton, a student. Keaton, where are you at, man? I got to find you during this story. There you are. There he is. There's Keaton. I was invited by Keaton, a college student, to come hang out with him. And not only come hang out with him, but to go to a show at First Avenue, which is like a concert venue downtown. And if you were at the Salt Company kickoff, you know my history with the whole scene kid thing. There's, there's plenty of stories there. But So I, I go to this concert, and it's like just straight nostalgia for me, and it, and it was awesome, and it was this band called Snarky Puppy, because apparently if you take any two words and smash them together, it becomes a band name, and I had never heard of Snarky Puppy in my life, but Keaton was, he was just hyped, and so I am having this interesting experience where I don't know who these people are, and I'm just kind of there watching, but everybody around me is like losing their minds. They're like teenage girls at a Bieber concert, and I'm just kind of watching this all happen, which I love. Like, I, I'm a fan now. Like, it was actually pretty sweet. They, they're like this jazz meets funk meets rock. I don't know. Is that right, Keaton? I should have asked. Anyway, uh, and they, they would do, like, improvising, and their, their front man was kind of, like, directing people when to come in, and it was cool. So, like, I'm a fan now, but I was having this weird experience where people were, like, losing their minds, and I'm just kind of standing there like, what, what is happening? And, and so we, we get in line after the show is over to, to meet the, was it, I think it was the saxophone player. Anyway, to meet somebody in the band. And Keaton is like, like a giddy schoolgirl. I mean, I don't think, he, I'm sorry, Keaton, I just, I gotta go there, man. And he, I don't think he was actually physically jumping up and down, but like, I mean, he was close. And, and so I'm standing there like, all right, man. So we get up there and I take a photo of him and he's like treasuring this thing and I'm just, Kind of like, all right, this is cool. It's late. Can I go home and sleep? Like, you know. So here, here's here's where I'm where I'm going with this is uh, people have vastly different reactions to something depending on kind of what they think of a person, right? So so this is what we've been seeing in Mark, and and I, this is what I've been kind of hooked by is the reactions that people are having to Jesus. So Mark is moving really quick, and Jesus is doing all of these, these miracles. He's preaching in the temple. He's doing all this stuff, and people are having like vastly different reactions to him based on kind of what they think about him. And, and we're going to see that again today, and I, I think if we look at those reactions, we're going to get a window into not only who Jesus is, but how we should respond to him. And, and in our stories, we're going to see a few different reactions. One, we're going, to see, we're going to see the Keaton reaction, 
we're going to see like this crowd of people that's treating Jesus like he's a celebrity and they're just going nuts and they're, and they're chasing him, which maybe seems like the appropriate reaction to Jesus, but actually I think we're going to find that it's fairly shallow. Like they kind of want to take the autograph, the photo, and then they want to get out of there. They want to leave. They don't actually want him in their life. And then we're going to see a second reaction, which is kind of like me at that concert. People just kind of standing off to the side. They're, they're kind of like not that impressed, kind of like watching the crowd, but not really in it and unimpressed. And those are the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. So I want to look at these stories. I want to investigate those reactions. I want to see what it tells us about who Jesus is and what it looks like for us to respond to his revelation of himself in a way that demonstrates his authority, all right? So, so let me read the story. We're in Mark 2, and I'm gonna just kind of read this story for you because it's, it's kind of one of the iconic stories uh, from Jesus's ministry. So you can, if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. Otherwise, it should be on the screens. Um, but either way, eyes, eyes on the Bible with me. All right, Mark 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Notice that Jesus isn't there just to impress the crowds. He's there to preach the word. Okay, verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. (laughs) That's hilarious. And when when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Familial terms, really compassionate terms. Your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, a.k.a. reading their minds, okay, getting, getting weird, uh, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So I'm gonna finish the story, but I wanna stop there for a second. This, this is kind of an interesting little riddle thing that Jesus gives. What is easier? Is it easier to physically heal someone or to forgive them of their sins? And I've read a lot of commentators on this, guys that I respect, and they actually come down in different places. And so I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that. So some people are like, well, it's actually easier to say that, that you forgive them of their sins because anybody can just say that, but you gotta actually prove it. You gotta prove it by doing something physical to demonstrate your authority. There's other people that it's like, well, it's kind of a trick question because it's both. Like both with physically healing someone and forgiving them of their sins, only God can do either of those things. And there's some that kind of go the other way and say, well, there's been examples of healings in the past, but only God himself can forgive sins. And as, as we kind of unpack this, you're gonna kind of figure out what I think about it. But, but back to it, verse 10. So he says, he, he gives them this riddle, what's easier to do? And then he says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. 
So, okay, so let me set the scene for this story. So Jesus' ministry has just kicked off in Capernaum, which is kind of his, his home base, and he does all of these, these miracles and these amazing things, and so the crowds start forming, and Jesus is not about that. And so he takes off, and he goes to other towns around the region, but there's literally crowds, like, chasing him around this region of the country. And so Jesus is like, all right, forget the towns. I'm going out into the wilderness and the crowds are starting to chase him into the wilderness. Jesus is playing like, where's Waldo with the crowds, all right? And so there's people that have like chased him down all the way from Capernaum that are trying to find him in the wilderness, and all of a sudden Jesus shows back up in Capernaum. And it says that he doesn't, he doesn't announce his presence, but it was reported that he was there. So there's some dude that's running around knocking on doorways yelling, guys, Jesus is here, we gotta get out there. And so this, this crowd forms around this house, and this is like, it, it's, it's crazy, guys. This is the line for Sweet Martha's Cookies at the State Fair, which is insane. I experienced that for the first time this year, 45 minutes. It was rough. But they're, they're pushing in, and they, and they can't get in to see him. And so there's these guys that have brought their paralytic friend because they want him to be healed. They've, ha- they've heard rumors of Jesus' power and his authority, and they want their friend to be healed. But they get there too late, and they can't get in. And I would have loved to just be there during this conversation when some dude in the group is like, oh, let's just cut a hole in the roof. So they're like, all right, let's go for that. So they climb on the roof, they cut a hole in it, and they drop this paralytic man down in front of Jesus and literally interrupt his sermon. Mid-sermon, this dude gets dropped down in front of him, and Jesus walks over, and he looks at the man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Which for us, we're like, yay, Jesus, you're forgiving sins, this is great, but I'm reading in between the lines a little bit here, but I actually want to argue, I think that the crowd's response and the friend's response was actually annoyance. Here's why. Think about how much work they just went to to get their friend healed. Like, like, do you know how hard it is to carry dead weight? Like, I went to a secular school. I saw some weird stuff. One night I came home, there was a dude passed out in front of my dorm floor. I had to drag him into my CA's office. Like, it's hard to carry dead weight. Okay, so are there like two dudes on the, on the bottom and two guys up on the roof and they're like kind of trying to push him up there and then they get him on this mat and they have to lower it down so he doesn't, t- like they've, they've gone to work to get this guy to Jesus and what do they want from Jesus? They want him to be healed. They want him to stand up and walk, which Jesus eventually does, but he's gonna do something different first. He's gonna say, I forgive you of your sins. And I think that these guys are going, uh, Jesus, there's a little bit more of an immediate problem. Like, you, you kind of missed the whole thing about why we're here. There's a more significant and immediate problem, and I think what Jesus is saying by his actions is, no, there isn't. There's not a more immediate, worse problem. There's actually a deeper issue that this man has, a more immediate problem that Jesus came to handle. This guy was infected with a terminal disease called sin. And Jesus wanted to address that. And I want to unpack that a little bit more, but first I just want to address something. Like, if you're suffering, that's a hard thing to hear. And I, and I know that, like, I, I specifically know some of you, you're dealing with, like, losses of a family member. You're dealing with chronic illness. And for, for Jesus to say, actually, the bigger issue is your sinfulness, not just being healed physically, can feel offensive 
Because for you, that's the, the most difficult presenting issue is that suffering and that suffer it, suffering being eradicated from your life. And I do want you to see that Jesus does heal this guy. Like, like physical help and healing absolutely is a part of the kingdom of God. And it's something we want to be a part of in this city. We don't want to just be kind of leeches and take from the city. We actually want to be a part of making the city a better place. We want to alleviate suffering here because that's what the kingdom of God does. But that suffering is not the deepest issue because even if that pain is taken out of your life, you're going to fall back into hurting again. Something else is going to go wrong because we live in a broken world. And Jesus has not promised a painless, easy life, but he has promised you himself. What you need to walk through suffering is not necessarily to have everything that's hard removed from your life, but to have the God who suffered walk with you through it, standing beside you and carrying you when you can't walk. That's what you need in suffering. And the, and the deepest issue in your life is not the hard things that you're encountering. It's that you're isolated from the God that made you to be in relationship with him. The problem is that sin isolates you from him. And even if you're familiar with the idea of sin, it's easy to miss the depth of the problem. Guys, sin isn't just a few bad behaviors. It's a disease. It's a cancer, and it's buried deep within you, and you can't fix it. It affects, infects not just your behavior, but your thoughts, your motivations, your desires, kind of everything about you, everything about me. And what I want to show you is that sin is a poison in your life, and that it's robbing you of what you were made for. And, and I think we know we have a problem. Like, I think we intuitively know that as humans, whether or not we call it sin or whatever, I think we know we have a problem. And we're kind of grass is greener type people, right? We're always kind of wanting to, to tweak our life to make it just a little bit better. So, so what, what is that for you? Like, fill, fill in this blank. If, if I just had blank, then my life would be good. Dave Hunting and I were actually talking about this the other day and how dumb this is. So Dave's, Dave, I'm filling in your blank for you in front of everyone. I didn't plan on this, but it's happening. All right, he gives me a thumbs up. We're good. Dave's filling the blank as he wants snow tires on his bike, and he thinks that his life will be satisfactory if he has snow tires. My fill in the blank is I want some of my friends that are in Iowa to be here with me. That, that's not going to like suddenly magically make my life better, but... We, we run to that stuff because we want some quick fixes for our problem. And, and when, I was, when I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think about kids. So I, I don't have kids yet, but I think they're absolutely hilarious. Parents, you're gonna, you're gonna, like, you're gonna know about this. Kids are so funny because they're just, they're just humans that are just bad at being human. And I, it's just true. They're, they're amazing. We love them, but they're just not good at life yet. And, and so they try and solve problems and it just gets hilarious. So, so my niece Fallon is, she's awesome. I love her to death. She's so cute. She hates being sweaty for some reason. And she can't say the word sweaty. So she's just like, I hate being sweaty. And, 
And so she, there was one day that she was outside with her dad. Her mom was off visiting the neighbors and Fallon gets sweaty and decides, I got to fix this problem. And so she heads up uh, inside, walks up the stairs, finds her parents' scissors and then walks down the steps, just taking snips out of her hair. And then is super proud of herself for solving the problem and knocks on the window and is like, daddy, I'm not sweaty anymore, which is just not true right? Like, you're just sweaty with bad hair now. But problem solving. All right, so I, another one. So I, I worked at an elementary school for a while and saw some messed up stuff, and it was amazing. And there was this one particular kid, a kindergartner named Diego, which how can you not love a dude named Diego? And this dude wreaked havoc on that school. Like, he was a terror. I think it was short man syndrome. He was a little dude, and he was trying to make up for it. But he was just this little dude named Diego, and he had these glasses that were broken and, like, taped around the rims or whatever, and he just caused trouble. And Diego hated the bus driver. Him and the bus driver just went round after round. And I was always the one that got called in to, like, talk him off the ledge a little bit. And so I get called, Mr. Adams, you got to come into the office. Diego's back in. All right, sweet. So what happened, buddy? So he proceeds to tell me that the bus driver is not happy with whatever he was doing and that the bus driver was going to get him in trouble and Diego had had enough and he didn't want to get in trouble. So he solved the problem. He solved the problem by climbing out of the bus window, hanging from the side of the bus by the window, jumping down onto the road and then for good measure, grabbing a stick and throwing it at the bus and running away. (laughs) And I just wanted to be like, dude, and you thought this was going to get you out of trouble? Like, you just created more problems for yourself. But reasoning with a five-year-old turns out doesn't work super well. So here's my point. I I just think, like, when God looks at us, we're kind of like Diego. Like, you trying to solve your sin problem on your own, that's what you look like. That's what I look like. Because here's what we do, is we know we have this issue and we feel the pain of the isolation from God because of our sin and we try and make up for that pain by putting things in our lives that we think are gonna help us feel that intimacy, that connection that we need from God alone and that only he can offer to us. Where do you run? Like what's your quick fix? Maybe for you, it's trying to find that significant other. And you think, if I just find that person, then my life's gonna be happy or, or, or good. Or maybe you already have your significant other and you just kind of wish they were a little bit like your ideal version of them. And so you become critical and you think, if you would just change that, then my life would be good. Maybe for you, it's like old-fashioned money. Like... <laughs> If, if you have enough of that and you can kind of buy yourself enough stuff, pursue your hobbies, do whatever, then you're going to be okay. Or maybe for you, it's the interesting life. Maybe you got to live in Colorado and you're going to live by a mountain and then everything's going to be fine with you and you're going to take a bunch of Instagram pictures and people are going to think your life's interesting and amazing and you're going to be set. Your life's going to be awesome. What are your quick fixes? Okay, this is what I'm trying to get at is your problem is that you're isolated from God by your sin. You're robbing yourself of the centerpiece of all joy. And your fixes aren't gonna solve that problem. 
But here's also what I want to say is, your biggest issue is not the negative impact that your sin has on your life. Your biggest issue is who you're sinning against. Who you're sinning against. So if you look back at the text, what you're going to find is that these scribes accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of claiming to be God, which is interesting because he never actually like fully comes out and says, hey guys, I'm God, here I am. So what does he say that makes them accuse him of blasphemy? Well, he says, I can forgive you of your sins. And here's the deal, only God can forgive sins because it's primarily only God that we've sinned against. Like if, if I sin against Tim, Mason can't forgive me. He, like, like he can't come out, oh, you're good, Jordan, it's fine. Like Tim's gonna be a little upset about that, right? The person that you, that you hurt, that you sin against has to be the one to forgive you. And Jesus walks up to this paralytic and he goes, I forgive you. All of the sins in your life were actually against me. And so Jesus does this crazy thing where he's revealed the disgusting nature of sin and it as the primary infection, the primary disease, the primary problem, but then he runs not away from sinners, he runs to them. Look how he responds. Verse 13. We're into to kind of the, the next story where Jesus, immediately after showing the sinfulness of human beings, runs to sinners to spend time with them. Verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowds were coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Notice who he's hanging out with. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with sinners, with tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is swarmed by this crowd and he picks out one dude from the middle of the crowd, Levi, the tax collector. And he says, hey you, you're coming with me. Which, you remember, you remember how you pick teams in junior high when you're gonna play football or basketball or something? You had captains, right? And the captains on, on each side picked the best players, which this didn't go well for me because I had two phases in junior high, the Gumby phase where I'd spurred up and my, my limbs were too long and I couldn't control them or the fluffy phase. You can do the math on what those were. And either way, I was struggling in junior high to play sports. And so I was never picked. I was never picked first. So here's the deal. Jesus is a bad captain because his first pick is the worst dude there. He goes and he finds the, the sinner, the notorious tax collector, and he says, hey, you're coming with me. Th this is who the, the tax collectors were. They were con artists. Okay? Nobody, nobody likes to have their money taken, and that's what the tax collectors did. They collected money for Rome, who the Jews hated, and then on top of that, they, were, they would charge kind of an extra fee and pocket the money themselves. These were, these were bad dudes. They were con artists stealing from the poor to get rich. And Jesus is like, yep, you're the one I wanna hang out with. You're the one I wanna spend time with. And, and the scribes are mad about it. Why? Because they were proud. They were self-reliant and they had spent their life 
trying to be impressive. They had spent their life kind of fulfilling this, this religious performance ritual because they thought that that would make them right with God. And then they see Jesus hanging out, not with the religious people, but with the messed up people. And they think they should be the ones hanging with him. They think that they've earned it. What about for you? Are you proud? Do you think you've kind of earned your standing with God and so you're not dependent on him because you're kind of self-reliant? This is how pride comes out for me. I just want you to think I'm like a capable, smart human. And, and this church plant has been like brutal in exposing that because I'm doing a bunch of stuff for the first time to people that I don't know. Like this is my first time speaking and I've been like freaking out all week <laughs> because I want this to, to go well which means that I'm taking the things of God and I'm making them about me. And I, I want you to think that I know what I'm doing, not that he knows what he's doing. Where does that come out in you? Are you defensive? Like when your spouse criticizes you, how do you respond? Do you, do you try and prove that, no, 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 this wasn't really your fault, you're not really that bad? Is your immediate response to defend yourself or is it to humble yourself and to hear what they might be saying, and to, to repent. Do you compare yourself with other people? Do you, do you take people that, that you're supposed to support and love and serve and put yourself in competition against them and try and evaluate whether you're kind of better than them or if, if you evaluate that they're better than you, do you want what's best for them or do you kind of want something to go wrong? Is it hard for you to repent of sin? Is it hard for you to just own where you've messed up? Are you proud? Are you self-reliant? Are you a little unimpressed by Jesus because you're a little over-impressed with yourself? Or some of you actually have a different problem. You, you, you struggle to come to Jesus because you think that with all of the junk in your life, that he'll never accept you. You'll never be loved by him. And guys, for me, this was, this has been like the story of my life. For me, the, I, I've, I've struggled with doubts with Christianity. And my biggest issue hasn't been, I've almost never doubted the existence of God, but I've doubted whether he could love me. Because I'm the one that knows all the junk in my life. And I've fought to believe that he could love me through that. If that's you, I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say. Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is the good physician who came not to condemn sinners, but to heal them. And, and, I, and I guarantee you that those tax collectors, as they're like chilling with Jesus, they get invited to this meal with them, which like even more in their culture than in our culture is a sign of like, you belong, you're in with me. And they're chilling with Jesus. And I guarantee you, some of them were thinking, dude, do you have any idea who I am and what I've done? And the answer is, Jesus is like, yep. Remember when he was reading minds earlier? <laughs> 
Like, dude knows everything. Like, your life plays like a, a, a movie on repeat in front of him. And it's not only your actions, it's your motivations, it's your desires, it's, it's those messed up thoughts that you don't tell anybody about. And he sees it all, it plays on repeat in front of him. And what does he say? He said, I came for you. Like, I want you. You're the person that I want in my family. You're the person that I want to spend time with. If, if you're broken, if you have more sin in your life than you want to admit, if you have junk in your past, then you're exactly the person that Jesus wants to heal. You're exactly the person that Jesus wants to spend time with. And if you feel like you don't belong here, like if, if church is for people different than you, this place is for you. Because that's what this is about. Jesus came to demonstrate his authority over sin and you can't out-sin God. His grace is just relentless towards you. And it just keeps coming after you. You can't outrun it. It won't leave. He'll come after you and he'll bring you into his family because that's what he does. Now notice what I'm not saying is that he'll just forgive you and kind of leave you where you're at. No, he, he wants to heal you, which means that he wants to eradicate the disease of sin from your life which means the only appropriate response to Jesus is not to just kind of show up and, and be around him to kind of get what you want and leave. It's not to be kind of disinterested because you don't really need him. The appropriate response to Jesus is to lay down on the operating table and to trust your good physician to heal you, to change you, to make you different. And here's what you need to know. Surgery hurts. There's a recovery process He's not going to leave your life the same because he's going to weed sin out of, nook and out of every nook and cranny of your life. And, and there's no darkness, there's no sin that's safe from Jesus. He'll do whatever it takes to get it out of you. And he'll, be, and he'll refuse to be replaced by those quick fixes. But here's the beauty of that. It's for your good. Like, this, guys, this idea, I know it's simple. I probably should have figured this out sooner, but it changed my life. Like, everything that Jesus asks of you is for your good. He wants what's best for you. And to follow him, to obey him, is the best possible life that you could live. Because to follow him is to get him which is what your heart is longing for. It's what you crave. And it's what you can't find in anything else. And if you come to him, he will change you. That's what he does. And human, like we're, we're like pretty bad at changing ourselves. How's your New Year's uh, resolution going from last year? Do you remember what it was? I know I made one. I don't. Why do we do this every, like every year we get hyped up, like I'm gonna make this resolution, this is gonna be the year, and then you actually need to make another one the, same, the next year, turns out, because you don't do it. We're actually pretty bad at changing, but when you meet Jesus, he changes you. That's what he does. But you have to come to him, not as a fan, not as a Pharisee, but as a patient in need of healing. And if he can take a tax collector and turn him into a disciple, he can change you. 
And some of you have felt like you can't stop sinning, like you're overwhelmed, like, like this is always going to be a part of you. And I just want to say, like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's not true because Jesus' authority is more powerful than your sin. He's strong when you're weak. And have you ever thought that maybe Jesus came to use weak people, not strong people, because that makes him look awesome? So, so kind of the, the question that I want to leave you with, are you willing to lay on the operating table? Are you, are you willing to let him do work in your life regardless of what that means? Do you trust him? And, and, and if the answer to that is yes, if you're like, yep, I'm in, I get it, I want Jesus, this is what I, I just want to ask you is like, what does he want to heal in you? What, what does he want to do in your life? What sin does he want to cure you of? How does he want to use you? Will you let him? Let me pray. Jesus, I'm, I'm really glad that changing and being the person that I'm supposed to be isn't entirely dependent on me. Uh, because I've, I've failed you a bunch, but you've always come through. You've chased me down. And that's true for, for all of us that come to you in faith, is you will relentlessly pursue us. And I'm asking you to give us the courage to not only believe that that's true, but to let you heal us. That, like, any time we get together as a church, that it's a gathering of sinful, messed up people. And, and you want to heal. You want to make us look more like you. You want to conform us into your image. And so we're, we're asking you, Jesus, would you do that? Would you heal us? Would you, would you conform us to the best way of living? following you and being obedient to you and knowing you and would you take our eyes off of all of our distracting things, all of our quick fixes and place them like squarely on you? Would we be a church that's amazed by you, dependent on you, in love with you and being changed by you? Would you do that, Jesus? We love you. Amen.